Please do turn in your Bibles again to Genesis chapter 27. And as you are turning there, and as we've already heard from our scripture reading this morning, we are about to jump into the narrative of Jacob and Esau, where Jacob gets uh, dressed up in goat skins, he gets the blessing, the inheritance from his father Isaac, instead of Esau. And, And as we go through this narrative, if you grew up in church, many of you might have memories of this account. You might even right now be visualizing seeing the flannel graph figures in your head, thinking through this this account. But what was the moral of the story? What did we learn from this account? Do you remember that part? I think we're prone to remember, I know I am prone to remember the parts about, you know, being tricky, uh, Isaac being blind, Rebecca having the master plan, Jacob wearing goat skins, all the cooking, lots of cooking today, uh, Jacob lying and getting the blessing in the end anyways. That's not the moral of the story, but that happens, it seems. All this stuff, Esau being super bummed, all the elements of the story, the parts and pieces that tell this story. And we know this too, this is not just a story, this is a historical narrative, this happened. And as we've seen over the last few weeks, while there are certainly times that these men and women do things that are good and honorable, there are also things that they do that are not so good and not so honorable. And as the Israelites first saw or heard these events in their history being recounted to them under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit through the ministry of Moses writing here in the book of Genesis, they, and secondarily we, kind of like we're reading this over their shoulder, we get to learn more about who God is and who we are. There are certainly morals to the story. And uh, we'll try to pick up on some of those. Uh, as we work our way through much of Genesis 27 today, uh, we'll get all, not all of them, maybe some of them, uh, maybe more so in the what not to do category with this narrative today. But we also want to accomplish, what we also want to accomplish here is seeing how this account moves the bigger uh, overall narrative of God's redemption of a people for himself forward. How God shows himself to be acting in sovereign providence over and even against the will of man for our good. And as we see this, may God give us an awareness of the security that we have in his care, that we would trust him and rest in his will. Uh, We don't have to figure out how to make God's plans work out well in the end. That's not for us to worry about. Uh, We certainly don't have to have a do-whatever-it-takes or the ends-justify-the-means approach to accomplishing his goals. We can do God's will, God's way, pursuing righteousness righteously with complete trust and assurance in the Lord. So let's let's dig into God's word to see what we can learn and be encouraged in here today. Genesis chapter 27, starting in verse 1. When Isaac was old, and his eyes were dim so that he could not see, he called Esau his older son and said to him, My son! And he answered, Esau answered, Here I am. He said, Behold! He's saying, Look at me! I'm old! I don't know the day of my death! Now then, or or since I think I might die soon, I need to act on this while I still can— Take your weapons, your quiver, your bow, and and go out to the field and hunt game for me. 
and prepare for me delicious food, such as I love, and bring it to me so that I may eat, that my soul may bless you before I die. Remember that back in Genesis 25, we learned that Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game. Because he ate of his game. Uh, wasn't this idea that, that the biblical idea of love where Isaac would have given himself sacrificially for the benefit of Isaac or for Esau for his good? More, more so like the I love pizza kind of a love, right? This is Isaac loving the meat that Esau brings to him. We know Esau was a hairy, outdoorsy, manly man, and he knew the way to his father's heart through his stomach, through his stomach. And Isaac now wants to give his favorite son the best thing that he can give him, the family blessing. And in ancient Near East culture, this act of giving the blessing, verbally giving the blessing, was more than just a positive thinking. It was, it was just not Isaac speaking what he would wish to be true one day for Esau. This speaking of the blessing was, an, it was a legal act. It was legal. It was a last will and testament. So it was binding. Isaac is sending Esau to make him a meal for a special occasion. So this was a huge day for father and for his favorite son. It's time for Esau to get his inheritance. But there's a little problem. There's a problem. Remember that also in Genesis 25. Uh, and while Jacob and Esau were still in their, in their mother's womb, God had announced, two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other. And we just assume, right? Of course it's the older one. That's, that's all the way it goes in our culture. That's how it ought to be. But he says, the older shall serve the younger. And already in verse 1, we see this, this mention of the fact that Esau is the older son. It's going to be carried through as we even read Genesis 27, the idea that Esau is the older, Jacob the younger. So we see this isn't right. Something's not right. This inheritance is not for Esau to have God has spoken. He has chosen Jacob. Yes, the law of the land might be that you speak the blessing to the older, but God's law supersedes, is over and above whatever they're trying to do. God is in charge. Okay, so this this inheritance isn't for Esau. But Isaac has other plans. In verse 4, Isaac tells Esau that he's going to eat this meat, and he says that my soul may bless you. And this statement is like saying, with all my heart and soul. Isaac was being passionate. He was deeply emotional and excited for this day. And remember, the greatest commandment that we have is that we should love the Lord our God with all of our heart, our soul, our mind, our strength, everything we've got, right? We love the Lord with everything we've got. And Isaac is now saying he is about to disobey God's will with all his heart and soul. This is not good. That's not good. Isaac is about to sin. What Isaac is doing here is contrary to what God has declared. He's sinning. And what God, uh, what Isaac is doing also is contrary to what God has decreed. He's contrary to God's declaration and he's contrary to what God has decreed because God has chosen Jacob. 
and no one can thwart God's plan. So, so think now. The father of this home, the leader of this family, has made this decision. A decision which is contrary to God's revealed will. Now, what kind of a sticky situation has his family now been pushed into as a result? Now, be encouraged, dads, husbands, uh, leaders of any kind, whether you're leading in the office, the shop, in the classroom, in your home. When you do the right thing, the right way, that trickles down to those under your leadership and under your care in a way that blesses everyone. When success is defined in ways that are contrary to truth, in, in ways that are contrary to righteousness, in ways that are contrary to what is pleasing to God, when we are willing to sin in order to get something, even when the desired object might be a good thing, we will hurt others in ways we wouldn't even think about. We get to choose our sins, but we don't get to choose our consequences or the extent of our consequences or who all will suffer consequences. And we get to see that on display in this passage today. Okay, Isaac has chosen a different path than the one God has already laid out. And now let's see how everyone responds. Uh, and, and spoiler alert, it's not going to be with heartfelt ap- appeals for his change of mind and repentance. Uh, verse 5. Rebecca, she was listening when Isaac spoke to his son Esau. The tent walls were thin, weren't they? She heard all of this, and so when Esau went to the field to hunt for game and bring it, Rebekah said to her son, Jacob, again, Isaac calls Esau my son, and now here Jacob is referred to as her son, Rebekah's son, Jacob. They're playing favorites here. She says, I heard your father speak to your brother Esau. He's saying, bring me game uh, and prepare for me delicious food that I may eat it and bless you before the Lord before I die. And that before the Lord part, even though Isaac never said that part, it's not recorded that way, it sure made this official sounding. And it should have startled Jacob into action. This was serious stuff. This was official business. There's no time to waste. And so verse 8, she says, Now therefore, my son, obey my voice as I command you. Do what I say, when I say it, how I say it. Go to the flock and bring me two good young goats so that I may prepare from them delicious food for your father, such as he loves. And you shall bring it to your father to eat, so that he may bless you before he dies. You see the plan? Jacob beats Esau to the food. Isaac eats and blesses Jacob. Game over. Success. It's a slam dunk. But hold on. There's a weakness to this plan. Well, there's many weaknesses to this plan, but there's one that sticks out to Jacob. Verse 11. Jacob said to Rebekah, his mother, Behold, my brother Esau is a hairy man, and I am a smooth man. Now, Jacob is smooth, as in he's been a liar, right? But he's also smooth as in not hairy, like Esau was. 
He says, perhaps my father will feel me and, and I shall seem to be mocking him and bring a curse upon myself and not a blessing. His mother said to him, said to him, let your curse be on me, my son. Only obey my voice and go. Bring them to me. So just hold on a second here. What is Jacob's chief concern? What is he worried about? Is, is Jacob perplexed and shocked that his mom is devising a plan to trick his father, her own husband? Is he having a hard time getting in his, his head this idea, this thinking about the idea of lying to his own father? No. Is Jacob making an appeal to his mother, knowing that God has already chosen him as the heir of God's promises, trusting God and ready to go honestly before his father to seek to make things right? Is that what Jacob's doing? No. Uh, when Rebecca said, before the Lord, that this is going to be done before the Lord, that brought so much comfort to their hearts, right? Because they knew that God would sovereignly intervene and carry out his plan, right? No. What is Jacob worried about? What's his hang-up? It says here that Jacob is worried that it might seem like he's trying to trick his father. It might seem like he's mocking his father. We might say, Jacob, do you know why it might seem like you're tricking your father? Because you are. That's exactly what you're doing. Seem nothing. You're doing it. So what's Jacob really worried about? What he's really worried about is that in his efforts to get the blessing he already has, in his efforts to get this blessing that God has already guaranteed to him, he's worried he might get caught. Getting caught. Remorse and getting caught is not repentance. He's worried he might get caught lying and receive a cursing instead. You see the issue here? And now, though, he's willing to go through with the plan... Now that his mother has vowed to take any curse he might receive on herself. As long as I'm not going to get the curse and you get it, I'm, I'm good to go. Happy Mother's Day. And so verse 14. So he went and took them and brought them to his mother. And his mother prepared delicious food, such as his father loved. If the reader hasn't picked up on it yet, Isaac loves food. And then Rebecca took the best garments of Esau, her older son. Which one? Her older son, his best garments, which were on, uh, which were with her in the house, and put them on Jacob, her younger son. The older shall serve the younger. And the skins of those young goats that she just uh, carved up and, and cooked, she put on his Hands And just a reminder, the Hebrew word translated as hands would include the whole area of the forearm down. And the same is true for the Greek word. So even when we think about the idea of Christ's crucifixion and the nails being driven through his hands, uh, that could have just as much been up in this area, which would have held his weight up on the cross. And so this whole area would be considered the hands. So if you think about goat skins, the reality of her stitching and moving all of the goat skins around his hand. That's probably not what happened. It was probably wrapped around his forearms, if that makes sense, okay? So she put the young goats on his hands, 
And it says, and then also on the smooth part of his neck. And she put the delicious food and the bread which she'd prepared into the hand of her son, Jacob. So here's, here's Jacob. He's got freshly slaughtered goat skins wrapped around his arms, around the back of his neck. Over the top of that, he's got his brother's clothes on so that he'll smell like the outdoors. He's going to smell like he just got in from the hunt. And in his hands, he holds the keys to his father's heart. Food. And hopefully, the prerequisite to the blessing he so desperately thinks he needs to obtain, even though he already has it. Do you see a correlation here, again, with the nature of our salvation? Jesus Christ has already died and paid the full penalty of our sin. God has opened our blind eyes and deaf ears, that head full of rocks and heart made of stone. He's worked in us that we would see the truth of our sin and the love and grace that he's given us. We've put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ alone for our forgiveness, and God has made us a new creation in Christ. We are given new life, eternal life, and God guarantees it. We've been declared once and for all not guilty. Christ's righteousness has been put to our account. Are we then going to come to God with sheepskins over our arms? Are we going to come to God with a record of our, our Bible reading, a list of, of all the church services we attended, the money that we gave, all our efforts and our good deeds, and say to God, am I good enough yet? Do I look like a real Christian yet? Have I got you duped into thinking I belong here? Christian, God has given to you, gifted to you by his gracious choice, the righteousness of Jesus Christ. When God looks at you, Christian, he sees you in Christ, perfectly righteous. All your bad is gone. All Christ's good is given to you. You don't have to play dress up. And in Christ, we have direct access to God. We can go boldly before our Father in prayer, trusting in his perfect plan and promise to work all things together for our good. We don't have to play dress-up to earn God's favor. We can't play dress-up to earn God's unmerited favor. And neither could Jacob. Verse 18 says, So he went into his father and said, My, my father. And he said, Here I am. Who are you, my son? So this is not going perfectly so far. Dad's ears still work. So he's wondering. And Jacob said to his father, I'm Esau, your firstborn, the older. I've done as you told me. Now sit up and eat of my game that your soul may bless me. So there's line number one. Sold with Jacob's knowledge of the backstory. In verse 20, Isaac said to his son, How is it that you found it so quickly, my son? How in the world did you find that so fast? And he, Jacob, answered, because the Lord your God granted me success. Now there's line number two. Uh, the Hebrew means the Lord caused it, or uh, it meaning the animal. The Lord caused the animal to meet before me. So Jacob is saying, 
I just went out there into the fields, and God just brought this animal and said, I'll be your dad's lunch. And then there it went. But think of the irony of this statement. The Lord your God granted me success. Yes, he did. He already had. Had nothing to do with these animals. So that was line number two. But a great irony. And then verse 21. Then Isaac said to Jacob, Please come near, that I may feel you, my son, to know whether you're really my son Esau or not. Can you imagine Jacob's heart pumping in this moment? Stop asking me questions, Dad. Right? And so Jacob went near Isaac, his father, who felt him and said, The voice is Jacob's voice. True. The hands are the hands of Esau. And he did not recognize him because his hands were hairy like his brother's Esau's hands. And so he blessed him. He said, Are you really my son Esau? And Jacob answered, I am. So not counting the hairy arms bit, that's line number three. In verse 25, Then he, Isaac, said, Bring it near me, that I may eat of my son's game and bless you. And so he brought it near him, he ate, and he brought him wine, and he drank. And his father Isaac said to him, Come near and kiss me, my son. So he came near, uh, the old-fashioned way, like shaking hands. They embraced, kissed one another, and Isaac smelled the smell of his garments and blessed him. Isaac's now convinced. And so blind old Isaac says, See! Blind Isaac says, See the smell of my son. That's kind of weird, isn't it? But that's how he says it, and that's, that's where the Hebrew is. So it, that's what he's saying. See the smell of my son is as the smell of a field that the Lord has blessed. That was kind of the warm-up. In your Bible, it might be set aside as in the poetry section here. That's kind of the warm-up of the poetry section. Now, in verse 28, I think here is where the official blessing takes off. Verse 28. May God give you of the dew of heaven. So rain, water for the fertility of the land. He says, and of the fatness of the earth and plenty of grain and wine. So blessing component number one, basically prosperity. Verse 29, let peoples serve you and nations bow down to you. Be Lord over your brothers and may your mother's sons bow down to you. Blessing component number two, rulership over the nations, which Israel would later have, and rulership over the family. Jacob would carry on the family headship. And then finally, cursed be everyone who curses you, and blessed be everyone who blesses you. So blessing component number three, if you remember these words, those who bless you I will bless, those who curse you I will curse. This is the Abrahamic covenant. And so this language here is being given. The idea is that the Abrahamic covenant has passed from Abraham to Isaac, and now Isaac's trying to pass it on to Esau, but it's already been given, and now he's verbally saying this to Jacob. To Jacob. Okay? What does Isaac think he's just done? Isaac thinks he has just given what God promised to Jacob to Esau instead. I did it! I got my way! Wrong. Wrong. And what did Isaac actually do? He gave what God had already promised to Jacob 
to Jacob. It didn't have to be this way, we could say, but God, God can even use the wrong actions of man to bring about his will. Praise God. And we see this throughout history. When everything looked like it was going sideways, God was steadfastly moving toward his plan. And Christian, when everything in your life looks like it's going sideways and backwards and every other way, God is steadfastly, faithfully moving toward his plan. And if God is for us, who can be against us? Verse 30, as soon as Isaac had finished blessing Jacob, when Jacob had scarcely gone out from the presence of of Isaac, his father, Jacob is out, Esau comes right in. Esau, his brother, came in from his hunting. He also prepared delicious food and brought it to his father. And he said to his father, let my father arise and eat of his son's game that you may bless me. His father Isaac said to him, who are you? And he answered, I am your son, your firstborn, Esau. And then Isaac trembled very violently. Imagine this now. Isaac has just tried to go around or go against the plan of God by giving this blessing, this inheritance to Esau. He thought he had succeeded and he might have been feeling all kinds of accomplished. And now he knows what just happened. He was going against God's plan wrestling, struggling against God, and he failed. And now he trembles. And it says very violently. He doesn't just have the shivers. And he said, Who was it then that hunted game and brought it to me? And I ate it all before you came, and I've blessed him. Yes, and he shall be blessed. He gets it. Isaac has surrendered. Whether he wants it or not, and we're going to see here, he doesn't. He knows this is outside of his control, though. He has nothing to do with, uh, at this point, but throw in the towel. Jacob has received the blessing. And verse 34 says, As soon as Esau heard the words of his father, he cried out with an exceedingly great and bitter cry. Imagine that scene. These two men, one of them very old, violently trembling, the other, in his prime, ready to receive this glorious moment, crying out and wailing this exceedingly great and bitter cry. And he says to his father, Bless me! Even me! Also! Oh, my father! But he said, Your brother came deceitfully, and he's taken away your blessing. Whose blessing? We see Isaac's heart here, don't we? Isaac knows he's lost, but his heart is not submitted. And perhaps Jacob's trickery made a, a barrier there for Isaac, where, where Isaac was thinking more of Jacob's lies than the promise of God. A part of, or, or much of Isaac's trembling could have been an anger against Jacob. And we know that, that Esau's definitely angry with Jacob. Verse 36, 36 says, Esau said, Is he not rightly named Jacob? Remember, Jacob was grabbing at the heel of his brother on the way out the womb. And the idea of his name Jacob meant first, in a positive uh, way of saying it, you're going to have your brother's back. But now Esau's saying that he has cheated me. And the wording there is that this heel grabber has tripped him up. 
He's cheated me these two times. He took away my birthright, and behold, now he's taken away my blessing. And he said, have you not reserved a blessing for me? And the actual answer to that is, I never reserved a blessing for Jacob. Right? He was going to give it all to Esau. But Esau asked, have you not reserved a blessing for me? Isaac answered and said to Esau, behold, I've made him lord over you. All his brothers I've given to him for servants, and with grain and wine I've sustained him. What then can I do for you, my son? And Esau said to his father, Have you but one blessing? My father, bless me! Even me also, oh, my father! And the repetition here it tells you what he's, he's still weeping, isn't he? He's in this mode. And Esau lifted up his voice and he wept. So there's the scene. And Isaac, in this moment, thinking a hundred miles an hour, right? He answered and said to him, this is the best he can do in this moment of anger, violent trembling, bewilderment, hearing his own grown son, his own grown son who's a strong outdoorsman, who's, who's so able to do whatever he wants to do, crying and wailing out bitterly. This is what Isaac is able to think of. Behold, away from the fatness of the earth shall your dwelling be, and away from the dew of heaven on high. Because Jacob has these, you won't. You have to go somewhere else. By your sword you shall live. God's protection is on Jacob. You're going to have to protect yourself. That's how Isaac sees this. And you shall serve your brother. But when you grow restless, this is the best he can do for him, you shall break his yoke from your neck. You're going to have to serve him. You're going to have to serve him. But let me try to give this to you not indefinitely. (laughs) One day you'll be out from under him. So, So what were Esau's tears here for? Why was Esau crying? Remember, this is not a broken, humble cry. This was an exceedingly great and bitter cry. Esau is not realizing the error of his ways. He's not acknowledging that he and his father have been following their feelings all this time against the revealed will of God. But in this moment, can we, can we sympathize with Esau just a little bit? He just lost, or at least he felt like he lost, quite a bit here. Possessions, the honor of carrying the family forward into the next generation, prominence, power, his father's uh, loving granting of him, of this, this blessing, this promise, God's covenant promises. Uh, granted, he'd never really been the one who should have been looking forward to these things in the first place. When he was still in the womb, they were told, The older shall serve the younger. How long had this been going on? This was not the first day this came up. Culturally, they say, this is not how it's supposed to be. The oldest is supposed to get the blessing. In their mind, this wasn't right. This doesn't feel right. And God's word may lead you away from the cultural norms. God's word may lead you away from how you feel 
about things. But God's word will never lead you astray from God's will. The cultural norms can be all kinds of wrong. We know that. We see that, right? Now, they certainly do not hold sway over the authority of God. God doesn't look down on the changes in the world and go, whoa, I had that one wrong. I'm going to tweak this thinking of mine. No, 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 no. We are the ones who change and come under conformity with the perfect, righteous truth that God gives. Our feelings can lie to us, and they do not get to tell us what to do. Don't give your feelings that kind of power. They don't get to tell us what to do. Am I going to trust my my fickle, ever-changing feelings? I might feel like this or like that on one day, one hour, one minute, one instant after the other. Are feelings changing, shifting back and forth? Am I going to trust those fickle feelings? Or am I going to trust the word of our unchanging, holy, righteous, all-knowing, loving, and faithful God? Right now, in this narrative, Esau has made his choice. And the choices Jacob has made haven't exactly helped out much as far as their relationship goes. Verse 41 tells us this. Now Esau hated Jacob because of the blessing with which his father had blessed him. And Esau said to himself, the days of mourning for my father are approaching. He's going to die soon. And then I'll kill my brother Jacob. Isaac lived another 43 years, by the way. They uh, really miscalculated that one. Okay? Perhaps in God's kindness. What, what transpires over the next 43 years mitigates the anger. Not Jacob's fear. Uh, but as we'll, we'll see these things in the next few chapters here. But verse 42 says, The words of Esau, her older son, were told to Rebekah. It's amazing. Rebekah keeps hearing what's going on with everybody. Rebecca, who desires to maintain control and make sure things are going the way she seeks and desires them to go, somehow finds out everybody's business. So she went and called Jacob, her younger son, and said to him, Behold, your brother Esau comforts himself about you by planning to kill you. Now therefore, my son, obey my voice. I feel like I'm batting a thousand today anyway, so listen to this next idea. Arise, flee to Laban, my brother, in Haran, and stay with him a while until your brother's fury turns away, until your brother's anger turns away from you, and he forgets what you've done to him. And then I'll send and bring you from there. Why should I be bereft of both of you in one day? The two possibilities there of her being bereft of both of them, one being that if If Esau kills Jacob, he's going to be prone to get out of there, right? And so now both the boys are gone. Or the law of the land again in that day was if you murdered somebody in cold blood like that, it was right and legal for an elder in your family to execute you, capital punishment. And so either one of those ways, Rebecca would be bereft, it says, of both of them, and she didn't want that. So she devises another plan. And Jacob would be gone for 20 years. We learn later on, Jacob would be gone for 20 years, and Rebekah would never send for him. She died before he ever came back. When Jacob leaves, it's the last time Rebekah ever sees her son. 
she wasn't in control after all. And so, big picture today. As we finish reading this passage, as we look at this whole thing, uh, we've looked at uh, different things that we can learn and grow in uh, throughout, but as we look at the big picture, what else can we see here? And we do see, here's a family who've been told by God what he's going to do. They've been told what he's going to do. And there's a dad who's led by his belly, his immediate desires, and his favorite son, who was led by his immediate desires. They are following their feelings. And there's a mom who's a planner and an investigator and a schemer. And her favorite son is a planner, a schemer, isn't he? They know what should happen, but they need to scheme in order to make sure it goes their way. We've got to be careful here that we don't say, well, Rebecca and Jacob were on the right side, so good. Well, hold on, though. It'd be hard to say that they were even simply on the same page with God's plan. It's not that they loved God and therefore they loved his plan. It's probably more like they liked his plan, so he was okay by them. God, I'm with you as long as you do what I want. That kind of a idea, that kind of a mentality. And we need to be careful with that because we might be more prone to slip into that mode than we realize. We, we know that God has a good plan, but are we knowing that he's trustworthy to see it through? And listen to this definition of the sovereignty of God's will uh, from John MacArthur, Richard Mayhew's book, uh, Biblical Doctrine, this definition. God's sovereign will is a reference to the fact that God's choices and decisions are in no way constrained by factors outside himself. God's sovereign will is a reference to the fact that God's choices and decisions are in no way constrained by factors outside of himself. Also, God's right to choose without being answerable to anyone or anything outside himself. Who tells God what to do? God does. God does. What outside influences can change his path and his plan? There are none. God, in his sovereignty, it says, has absolute rule and authority over all things. Here's a definition of God's providence. Providence is God's care for his creation involving his preserving its existence. So that's that first part there. Remember that we know that God spoke the universe into existence and that it is by his will that it is sustained. The reason why we are still here on this planet, spinning around, going around the sun, our solar system and our galaxy flying through space, and we just feel nice and comfy in here in our chairs because of gravity and all those kinds of laws that God put into place by his spoken word. The reason why all of that still is the way it is today is because God says so. Because God is sustaining it. That's the power we're dealing with. God's providence, God's care for his creation, involving his preserving its existence and meticulously guiding it to his intended 
ends. God preserves its existence and meticulously guides it to his, his intended ends. Those two definitions, God's sovereignty and his providence, if God is like me or you, my sinfulness, that's bad news for everybody. <laughs> that's bad news for everybody. I am not sovereign. I'm not sovereign. I'm not providential. There's times we want to be, though, aren't there? Isn't it good to know that God is also good? God is good in his very nature, and everything he does is good. He is righteous. He is holy. He is faithful. He is immutable. He never changes. And therefore, his plan and his intended ends for us will never change. Never. So here's what we can know. God is going to accomplish what he has set out to accomplish. No one can thwart God's plan. Even in our sin, we cannot thwart God's plan. And we cannot will the things that we want most to happen that are outside of our control. We desire that sovereignty sometimes when things aren't going the way we wanted them to go, when the process isn't looking the way we wanted it to look. But we can't will those things into existence. And when we try to do that, which is what we see Isaac and Rebekah doing today, yes? And Esau and Jacob. When we try to do that, in what ways might our actions provide that same kind of leadership that uh, Rebekah and Isaac gave their sons? This matters. And it matters beyond my own anxiety and my own worry, my own fear. We can trust in this. God will accomplish what he has set out to accomplish, and he is good. All we are left to concern ourselves with is to obey his will, to rest in his lordship and sovereignty and his providence. We trust in his goodness. We follow him. And when things don't look like they're going to go the way that we'd hope or that we'd expect, we don't have to get dressed up in sheepskins we don't have to shift our strategies as if our God cannot see. God did everything he said he would do. The blessing did go through Abraham. It went through Isaac and by his will, Jacob. And not because Jacob had an awesome plan. God brought a nation through these men exactly as he said he would even when they tried to do things their own way. And God brought a seed through them, a man through that nation who would bless the nations of the world. Nothing was going to stop God from bringing about the all-sufficient sacrifice that was required to bring us redemption and salvation. And nothing ever could. Nothing could stop God from that. And if you've put your faith and trust in Christ as your Lord and Savior, God has decreed what will transpire for you. He has promised you that nothing and no one can ever pluck you out of his hand. So we can rest in Jesus Christ. 
We have a rock, a fortress, a rescuer, an eternal hope, a future, and the God of the universe has guaranteed it. Christ is going to build his church, and even the gates of hell cannot prevail against it. So we don't have to worry. We don't have to worry about coming up with methods or schemes. We, we can trust God. We can simply do what he's said his way. We follow Christ. We water. We plant seed as God has commanded us. And he brings the harvest. And we know this. Christ is coming again. God wins. We don't have to worry and come up with some other better strategy to fix the world. Because Jesus isn't quite cutting it right now and we've got to make sure everything's right when he gets back. There isn't a better plan than the one that God's already given us. We can reach the world the way God has instructed us to. Living as a people set apart. Being salt and light in the world. Loving our neighbors as ourselves and making disciples of all nations. By God's grace, we have freedom. We have freedom from following our feelings. We have freedom from having to scheme and plot and worry to bring about what he meticulously works to bring about perfectly. Our God is holy, good, righteous, loving, sovereign. He saves us from our sin. Not the other way around. He saves us. And we can rest in him. Trust in him. Obey him. And rejoice in him. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you so much for your great kindness to us. Your gracious kindness to us in bringing about the birth, life, death, burial, resurrection of Jesus Christ. God, we thank you that even, even as Christ uh, lived this life, the life that he lived, as, as people rejected him, as he stood before uh, the Jewish leaders, as he stood before Pilate, as Pilate washed his hands of the guilt of what he was about to approve, as the crowds cried out, his blood be on us and on our children. God, none of this thwarted your plan. You brought about your plan in all of this. God, we are in awe of your power, of your purposes, of your ability, of your faithfulness, And through all of this, your goodness to us. Lord, help us to remember and understand that if this was not the way you worked, we would be hopeless and helpless. We all have sinned. And God, you gave Jesus Christ to redeem us, to pay the penalty of our sin. I do pray, Lord, if there would be one or two or three here today who do not know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, that you would open their hearts and eyes today, that they would see their need they would see your love and Christ's sacrifice for all their sin and they would put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ alone. 
and today begin to follow you. Follow Christ as Lord and Savior. And God, I pray for your church. Lord, may we see you first. Cling to you first. Seek your kingdom and your righteousness first. That all these things around us, maybe things in our home, in our families, in our workplaces, in our neighborhoods, in the culture around us, Lord, may we understand and know and trust that you are absolutely on the throne. You are still completely in control. That there is not a day that goes past your notice, that goes past your providence, that goes past your sovereignty. And may we trust in what your word reveals to us is your will. And follow hard after you. And God, we thank you that in this knowledge, in this truth, in this life, in these desires, we can have rest and peace and security and a uh, rock-solid hope because you are going to do all that you have said you're going to do. God, thank you for these promises that may they strengthen us as we go from here this week to be the salt and light you've called us to be in this world. And we pray this all for your honor, your glory, and your praise. In Christ's name, amen.